Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world. We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world. We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto, or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin. Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay, and we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Pastor, what's up? Dr. Robin. Another week. Another week. We got to see each other last week. We did. It was so exciting. We, yeah. I, I'm, I am, I feel like I'm being spoiled. I've gotten to see you in person twice in the last two weeks. And yeah. I'm, uh, I feel like it's been so long since we shared the same, uh, space together that, mm-hmm. um, you know, now, now I'm, now I'm spoiled. Now I'm like, yeah. okay, when are we doing it next? Right. <laughs> Right. But because we went to that action, it meant that I skipped the vigil for Tony McDade here in Nashville because, you know, I'm still trying to um, limit how much I'm in um, protest space or in crowds because we are still living in COVID-19. We are. It's 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 a really interesting um, world for those of us who find ourselves in the streets all the time. I mean, as, as you know, and as our listeners know, I mean, I'm, I'm continuing to be, um, a protest chaplain, you know, for my folks here in Chattanooga and I'm out, um, every night that they, that they gather for some form of action, but it's, it is, it is interesting days when, you know, you realize that, I mean, even a mask as, as diligent as I am in wearing it, and even hand sanitizer, as diligent as I am in applying it, um, may not completely, you know, keep me safe from anyone in that action space that, you know, that may be asymptomatic and, and exposing right. you to the, to the virus. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's still bizarre times. Yeah. And yet, I am, I am compelled to, to be there if I can, which, um, I, I wish I weren't compelled sometimes Yeah, (laughs) both my body and my, and my sense of my sense of health safety sometimes wish I was just going to stay home and, you know, sit on my butt and, you know, catch up on Netflix, but it is what it is. (laughs) Well, um, a couple things. I ended up getting a new pair of shoes so that my legs don't feel like pegs after I'm at a action. And the other thing is I saw a news article that I think it was in the New York times that reported there hasn't really been an uptick in, in COVID-19 cases due to protests. Right. Based on protests there, there have been upticks based on other social gatherings outdoors Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I have got to tell you, there, there are so few people, at least at the actions that I've been a part of, that are maskless. 
everyone yep. has been really diligent to 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 wear their mask to you know be to to socially distance and and i and i really think that that's that's making a difference i i hate that we have made mask wearing political um that we have you know taken it to a level where people you know think that those that you know are 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 on one side or one vantage point of the of the pandemic are are wearing masks and mm-hmm. those on the other side aren't but i got to tell you i mean in the spaces that i find myself right now people people are taking precautions yeah and i think it's a testament to the care that we have for one another mm-hmm. um and you know i i know that i know that the, at least the people that i'm in the streets with care deeply for their comrades they care deeply for our black and brown kin they care deeply for our organizers and they care deeply for the city and the Mm -hmm. last thing they want is to be a part of of the problem or a part of the spread of of the disease so so lots lots of thinking lots of strategizing lots of trying to figure out how to be in the work yes and also live in a pandemic Yes. Um, and just as a little aside, before we welcome our guest in, uh, you and I have talked about this, but listeners, if you have Netflix, you must watch Disclosure. Yes. You must. Um, and if you have the time and the capacity, specifically if you are uh, straight, cisgender, watch it a second time. It is an important piece of work. It is beautifully done. And Robin and I can't stop talking about it uh, on on the side. So just do us a favor. And uh, if you have Netflix, commit the two hours necessary to to watching to watching Disclosure. You will you will be the better for it. That's so good. So good. (laughs) And um, we're still in Pride Month. Yes. Which um, I'm kind of missing the ability to be at a pride festival, but very excited that we've had folks from the community on our podcast talking about pride and very excited to have um, our friend Miles Markham located in Atlanta, Georgia, a student at Columbia Theological Seminary, getting ready to graduate, doing amazing work in the community, faith organizing, queer and trans organizing, and just so thrilled that I've had a chance to get to know Miles. Um, Miles is a person of integrity and has a great vision for, I think, the work and is relatable. And I'm just so thrilled that we can have him on our podcast today. Welcome, Miles. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Mm. It's so good to have you. So good to have you. Well, we'd love for you to um, let our listeners uh, learn a bit, a little bit about who you are. Um, if you were to kind of share your story, share your um, vision for the world, share kind of what space you come to us from. Um, why don't you? Why don't you let our listeners know know what you're all about? Sure. Uh, well. Um... I guess um, 
My name is Miles, uh, and I, I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. I grew up in the deep south. I am a child of the 90s, and um, as any multi-ethnic brown and rad androgynous child uh, in that <laughs> setting, uh, I had an awesome time growing up. Nothing bad ever happened, and it was really easy. Um, Th that's a joke. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I learned very early um, that um, assimilating to dominant culture was uh, the safest route for me to take. Uh, and a part of that for me uh, was becoming a, a born-again Christian. So um, from the time I was a young teenager, um, Throughout the next seven years, uh, I was very involved with youth group, uh, with church camp, with um, any opportunity I could um, get, you know, in, involved with the church. Um, but that also included support groups, um, conversion therapy, ex-gay uh, ministries, uh, Bible college, yeah. uh, and eventually um, kind of getting to the space where um, through my own mental health um, decline, as well as meeting um, other queer and trans people, it became increasingly um, difficult for me to find the interpretation I'd, I'd been given, you know, of what um, the Bible had to say about people like me as uh, morally uh, coherent um, or, you know, conscionable any, anymore. So, um, starting in 2013, um, was when I was asked to leave all those spaces that I had, uh, been a part of and moved, um, into full-time, um, education and advocacy work around, uh, queer and trans identity. Um, but eventually that also included, um, thinking about, um, anti-racism and anti-oppression more broadly and so i've i've kind of been in in the nonprofit sector doing that type of work um but specifically um i've had the most passion and energy around doing that in in faith spaces so like mm -hmm. like mentioned I've, I've been in seminary i'm in a, a practical theology program and i'm specifically looking at uh, religious education and how that shapes, um, you know, the moral kind of outcomes of our life, not just in theory, um, but, but in practice. And, um, yeah, that's kind of brought me to where I am now doing what I'm doing. I'm, I'm currently working on, um, two different documentary film projects. Um, I also would co-sign on, um, everybody watching disclosure as just in terms of what i've been doing it's impact producing is is the field and that's just kind of coordinating our community engagement efforts um one mm -hmm. of the films is about environmental racism um through the story of flint michigan and their water mm. being poisoned and then the other film um which has not um been released yet um it's, it's called pray away and that is about the history and the continuation of of conversion therapy and ex-gay, mm. ex-trans ministries 
in the U.S. So yeah, mm. that's me. That's what I'm doing. Uh, that's where we're at. Cool. So Miles, I just want to um, pick up a little thread that you mentioned. You talked about being brown and androgynous, and also assimilating into dominant culture. What is your ethnic or cultural heritage or part of it? Yeah, it's it's a lot. <laughs> um, I am native Hawaiian. I am Japanese, Swedish, Irish, and German. And okay. um, in Hawaiian, um, the word that is, is used for people like me is uh, hapa, H-A-P-A. And so that's, depending on the audience, um, I, I think the most reflective of, of how I think about my lineages. Is this hapa? Yes. Yeah. And what, what does that translate to? Part. Okay. Okay. So this is like mestizaje in Spanish. Yes. The, the mixed. Okay. Okay. So I'd love to, I'd love to talk a little bit about your, uh, evolution kind of between those years of 2012 and 2014, you, you said, you know, it was really in 2013 that you were asked to exit the space of, of faith that you, or of organized faith that you found yourself uh, for all of your teenage years. Um, and I, I'm curious, so as, as a pastor and as someone who has pastored and continues to pastor in, in many ways, um, queer folk in the South, I'm curious to know what that, how that transition influenced the work that you do now um, and how it changed your theological understanding of who God was in, in your world. Um, did, that, did that happen kind of all in that cluster of time or has that been evolving for you since 2013 when when things changed? That's a great question. I, I, I think for important context, I became a Christian in 2005, which, um, you know, since that point, I, I worked in Christian radio for a little bit, which is what uh, gave me a more full context of what evangelicalism was, um, particularly throughout the late 70s into the 80s and 90s, um, as we saw the rise of the moral majority. Um, so by the time I came to faith, <laughs> just, the, just the thought of Christian radio, like makes my, like yes. makes me like sit up straight <laughs> right. and like, right. I want to like shake it off. <laughs> right. Um, but by the time I came to Christianity, we had already seen, um, the rise of the emergent faith movement. And so for me, um, I was not introduced to the message of Jesus's salvation as um, a um, get out of hell free card. There was not <laughs> a lot of talk about uh, fire and brimstone in the kind of evangelical mega church non-denominational land in which um, I had you know, my sort of conversion experience. In fact, um, most of what I was saying yes to was predicated on um, this idea of B 
being able to experience the love and wholeness and freedom in Christ. And so it, it was not rooted in fear. And I think that that's really important when I tell people my story that that was never, um, something that I was traumatized by is that message, um, of you need to get saved so you, that you don't go to hell. Here's what hell is. Um, but even without that, I think that, you know, like, like most people who have some sort of, uh, I, I think sense of being displaced, um, particularly when you grow up in the South and you're growing up in, in smaller communities. Um, my, my vision of God, um, even if it was already more, um, uh, flexible, um, than maybe some of my peers, um, who became Christians earlier in their life and had families who were more stringent, um, about, you know, what that meant for them. Um, I, I still found it to be a gift, you know, to be put in an environment, um, after leaving, um, the confines of those very, um, uh, conservative theological spaces, um, to, to learn that God could be bigger. Um, mm. and it was actually during my last, um, year of Bible college that two pretty significant things happened to me. One was I did a, um, contextual ministry project on the LGBTQ community. And the whole idea was that you were supposed to, um, design a plan for evangelism, um, which included doing what they called missiological research, which more or less is, um, constructing, um, you know, a, a, a broad, um, view, uh, a broad sort of like ethnography almost. Of, of queer and trans people. Um, and I was in Columbia, South Carolina at the time. So those were, um, the very generous and gracious people who I was talking to, to in inform my perspective right. on that at the time. Right. Um, and the second thing that happened was I was in uh, a cultural anthropology course, uh, where I had a project that gave me an opportunity to learn more about my lineages and specifically to study um, the history of, uh, colonialism and Christianity in native Hawaiian communities. Um, it, and all, all of this was through like an evangelical lens, but nevertheless, between those two projects, um, my, my worldview had already dramatically expanded. Um, I, I was, uh, even without kind of naming it this way, I was building a, a theological like scaffolding to help me move out of that space. You know, I had been living in since I had become a Christian. And so in that way, um, you know, I have so many friends and colleagues who went through a profound deconstru deconstruction process. Um, and that's not to say that mine wasn't, it was just, um, over more time and gradual. And so I didn't have, um, some of these more catastrophic uh, 
acute experiences. Maybe that's a better word um, to talk about it because it, it was happening uh, little by little over time. And you also came from a different starting point than yes. many of those people. I mean, like yes. you said, you know, many of those people were coming from a, a, a faith that, um, you know, where hell was an anchor right or a touchstone for for many of them if not all of them and um i mean i would assume without putting words in your mouth that you still understand understood god to be punitive mm -hmm. um but not from a not from a um cast cast to the depths of hell standpoint but from a disappointment almost kind yes. of that paternal yes paternal um which you know also speaks to i would assume that you that the god that you came to know in 2005 was still also highly patriarchal and highly Definitely. misogynistic and yes. i mean all of the things that contribute to kind of that punitive feeling regardless right. of whether hell is the is the construct that you're you're understanding right. it through or not right okay and so were you were had you identified as queer at that point when you were in bible college or were you still was that a completely different um kind of path that you were trying to walk simultaneously yeah uh i did not identify as queer that word was you know very far from my lexicon at the time um i at, i used the phrase um same-sex attracted um and and that comes okay. out of like the X game ministry playbook. Um, right. Yes. And, and I would, I would have also used the phrase um, gender confusion. That was something that oh. I understood hmm. as a part of my um, equation as well at the time. Okay. Okay. So, so you, um, yeah. So that's like a whole like tangled ball of string um, that, that you then, you know, unwound um after your departure from bible college and in 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 a multitude of ways both you know solidifying or discovering or affirming your identity um both as a christian and your identity as a queer person yes definitely <laughs> wowzer what and miles like would you still identify as christian now yes okay I have a hard time with that because I feel like Christianity equals white supremacy. And so um, the the best, the closest I can come to is, oh, I'm becoming Christian. Yes. Because I feel like it's a lifelong process. Yes. And I, I think in conversations you and I have had before, how you've described that and the importance of those words is something that certainly resonates more deeply with me yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, I, I think that the phrase, like, I, I still very much see Jesus as sort of the center of how I conceptualize my faith and my spirituality. Um, and I would still call myself a person who is following after that model. Um, mm -hmm. But I think, too, depending on the space I'm in, it makes more or less sense um, to be very very precise and very particular with what I mean um, by the words yeah. that I'm using. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find myself in a very similar space that, you know, Christian is a, is a moniker that I 
take on and that I affirm. Um, but I want to be able to affirm it with conditions. I want mm -hmm. to be able to kind of define what Christian means to me in order for me to then affirm that that's what, that that's the, the way that I identify. And so I tend to, oftentimes people will say, are you a Christian? And I will say, I am a radical follower of Jesus um, as a response, because it, it feels much more specific to right. who I am and how I identify than just right. saying, yes, I am a Christian. Right. Um, so, yeah, right. I usually ask people to define the term and then I'll say yes or no, depending on okay. you know, <laughs> so how, how do you, they are qualified. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, a great, that's a great way to handle it because then you um, can both can both. Well, you're going to learn really quickly who they are uh, yeah. once you ask them to, to define it, but you also can then, you know determine how you answer right like, that's a good tactic well and it's might, pretty you know jesus-y to uh respond to a question with a question um yeah i, I think that's <laughs> on brand say that i am yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so we're you know in on the on the back half of pride month and you know robin and i have talked and and continue to talk about you know, the, both the need for, um, pride centered spaces in our world, but also, you know, some of the problems that come with the commodification and, um, you know, capitalist undergirding of what pride has become. But apart from that, what are your, what are your positions on pride, on pride as, um, you know, necessary in our world as pr on pride as, um, you know, space for those of us who are Christian in whatever definition we, we, um, attach to that. H how, how does pride feel to you? Yeah. Um, well, probably, um, you know, not dissimilar from either of you. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up, um, you know, understanding pride to be a bad thing. Um, and it was especially bad to be proud of being LGBTQ. Um, so a lot of, you know, my journey has been exploring, um, specifically the way that pride, um, has played out over the history of queer and trans rights, um, and, uh, other social movements as well. Um, so I, I think this, uh, Pride Month, um, in particular, um, has kind of left me reeling in the ongoing reality of, um, of living in a pandemic, uh, the reality of anti-blackness and racial terror and the complex root of all of the systemic injustices in this country. Um, and it's, it's felt important for me, I guess, that beyond parades and parties, um, which hear me are important. And I do think, sure. um, have a critical place in, uh, queer and trans people, um, cultivating resilience. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess like as a Christian, it's, it's one of the, the times of year where I feel the most ambivalence um about that identity 
because、mm. it ha- has often been people of faith who are the most vocal proponents、um, in promoting all of the false and toxic myths、um, that our community falls prey to.、Um, and、yeah. in addition to that,、um, it's often people of faith who champion、uh, the the rhetoric of not seeing color. Um, and I admittedly have only seen the phrase "all lives matter" come from people of faith. Um, and、right. you know, in in my context, um, particularly Christian people, and so I've I've been troubled, <laughs> you know, with um、uh, kind of holding all of these these identities, but um at the very same time. Um, one of the reasons I've been the most grateful、um, for my—I've called it my re-education experience in seminary. Not that you know, <laughs> academia doesn't have its own challenges,、um, but one—I've been introduced to um, post-colonial um, feminist and womanist and other liberation theologies、uh, that have given me the space、um, to see pride. Um, as a as a source of strength and as、um, the fuel to resist and to push up against dehumanization、uh, on many levels,、yeah. you know, including all of all of the different identities I hold. So to be proud、uh, to be a queer person, to be proud to be a trans person, to be proud to be、um, an indigenous person, to be proud to be. An Asian American to be proud, you know, all of all of these things are what I, I think not just、um, survival becomes、uh, predicated on, but、um, the ability to thrive is, is、yeah. as well, you know, directly linked to how proud I can be, you know, of my ancestors and my lineages,、um, whether those are around,、um, you know, gender, sexual. Or ethnic identity. I'm wondering, Miles,、um, do you have been doing a lot of work around、um, being white passing and Latinx? And I'm wondering if your proximity to whiteness or your assimilation into the dominant culture has caused you to be proud of. The Hapa, or yourself as Hapa, or or what that relationship has been. I just feel curious about that. Yeah. So I think one thing that is worth noting is that Hawaii、uh, has a very different racial ethnic history、um, than the mainland United States,、mm-hmm. and I think because of that. Um, it informed looking at、uh, Hapa identity as、um, different than how mixed identities are constructed in the rest of the United States, particularly mixed identities、um, as they have manifested、uh, in the Southeast. And so,、mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think for me, a part of understanding, you know, that identity has. Been a journey of working out what it means to be、um, colonizer and colonized.
um, not, mm-hmm. you know, as this binary, um, but as something that, you know, is fluid, is dynamic, looks different from one space to the next. And so, um, it's, it's been interesting for me, um, because at, when it comes to being white passing, it really depends, uh, where I am and, mm-hmm. um, what proximity the people in each space have had to different mixed identities. And so, mm-hmm. um, the way that I read to most people is ethnically ambiguous. Like, I think if mm-hmm. you put me in a lineup of people, that's generally their reaction is, well, you, you got something in there, but I don't know what it yeah. is. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And I think too, it's, it's also informed by who you're spending the most time with. And so my, mm-hmm. uh, partner is, uh, Latina. And so when people see us, then they just assume like, Oh, that's a little, you know, Latinx couple. And I mean, mm-hmm. even <laughs> her own family, you know, uh, have, have asked me, you know, or assumed that I too, you know, was Puerto Rican. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that I, I'm kind of processing your your question as I'm answering it, but, um, I, I don't know. I, I think a part of using that word in particular, um, is something that my parents and my grandparents used affectionately. And so I think that's one reason that I hold to it closely. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, a, a part, you know, and I don't know, I don't know if this has been a part of your journey, but a part of what I found myself doing a lot of work around is figuring out, um, this question of, um, like wholeness, you know, instead of looking at mm-hmm. my mixed identities as like partiality, um, mm-hmm. to think about, always being a whole person, not, mm-hmm. you know, just, uh, s- some amount of percentages of like this thing or that thing. Um, yeah. and, and I think too, a part of that reckoning with mixed identity is, uh, is exploring the power and privilege that does come with it. Um, mm-hmm. and again, that changes from like space to space. Um, but I am pretty cognizantly, you know, aware of it. Um, de- depending on where I am, what I'm wearing, and you know, how people are reading me as I'm just walking down the street. Right. Right. Yeah, the whole mixed heritage um, person, um, I think for a lot of us, the struggle to be whole and become whole is part of part of a narrative somewhere. And so I think that especially in this day right now, folks trying to get clear on how they've assimilated and how to decolonize and how to deal with the dynamic features of oppressor and oppressed um, is, is a lot of people's story right now. I know it's, I know it's my story right now. Yeah. And I think too, one, that's where I've really appreciated again, some of, um, 
you know, not just these theologies, but post-colonial or decolonial scholarship at large, particularly when it's written in a way that I find it accessible. Um, and um, Because it's often not accessible. Right. right. <laughs> um, but it's really helped me to kind of um, reclaim um, themes, you know, of uh, hybridity and um, border crossing and um, these other mm -hmm. ideas that um, allow a person to uh, be both and, you know, not at all and everything um, <laughs> at, at the same time. Um, I think when I try to like parse out um, what am I, you know, and, and you know, like I'm some kind of pie chart or something, that, that's when I right. experience um, that, that's when I dehumanize myself, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is, is to look at myself as a collection, you know, of <laughs> objects, you know, instead of like a coherent, complete person. And so I, I, and I suspect like that's lifelong work. You know, I think it's, it's been a challenge for me, but seeing other folks like you, you know, who are living into that and, living out of it and using storytelling, you know, as a way to not just yeah. find the, the wholeness, but to heal um, and to, yeah. to help point other people to different tools that might help them, you know, heal as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a good lesson or a lesson may not be the right word, but it's a, it's a good reminder, even for those of us who identify as white um, and, and, kind of solely white European that, you know, we are also not binary either, that there are complexities in even, even our, our, um, the, the, the ways that we have come to understand our whiteness. And, and those are, it's such, I, I, I've relished this the last few minutes listening to the two of you kind of navigate that, um, the, the conversation on, on kind of who you are and how you find yourselves and what wholeness feels like. It's, it, it just, it's given me a lot of, a lot to think about. I'm, I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I'd love for you to, to maybe go, into a slightly different direction, but also to, <laughs> to kind of maintain this um, authenticity in kind of speaking to the, the movement around black and brown bodies that we're seeing in, in the world right now. You know, we are, we're highly aware that it is our black trans sisters who are, being murdered at a higher rate than any of us would um, would want, or and, and I mean, it just makes me like it makes my heart drop into my stomach. There's there are challenges around this movement for Black Lives Matter and highlighting the the trans piece of the work and how critical it is to the conversation. Um, and I'm wondering if the two of you might kind of provide some insight for me, for our listeners on how you see the, 
the work of um, making these voices more more um, important or, or prevalent or, or or holding them holding them in the space, um, and just just kind of how you how you're seeing that that work in the movement right now. Mm. Yeah, I, I think one of the first things that comes to mind, which was um, really powerful to watch in Disclosure, uh, is you see the way um, that both um, race and gender, um, in, in this film in particular, they're talking about it, the representation of those two things in the media, um, have um, been used um to create uh an other and so as i've you know just been connecting you know with different colleagues um in atlanta um at protests and marches and rallies and with queer and trans organizations in particular uh who center um trans femme um uh people of color and trans women of color i it's just become so clear to me um, that so much of transphobia is rooted in um, the hatred of the feminine. And I, I, and so much of that is about control. So much of that is about power. What um, so much of I, I think the violence that trans feminine and trans women people face is um, based on is, you know, this notion of um, the, the feminine being less than and trying to um, do away with that, you know, people experiencing fear um, around their own genders, you know, and their own sense of, Security, if that is built on, um, you know, their perceived sense, you know, of masculinity, which is then their perceived sense of power, um, then mm -hmm. of course they're going to have a visceral and on like violent reaction, um, to being put in a position, you know, where they're called to really have to wrestle and interrogate, you know, themselves. Um, and I think that is only compounded, you know, when um, you pair that with anti-blackness. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know. I think that there's, there's gotta be more of a solution than just um, storytelling. I do think that's like a, a very big piece of unlocking this violent puzzle um, is more representation, you know, more, um, narratives being presented and more experiences being shared. But I think one caution, um, I've actually, um, I've taken, um, is that there's also a tendency for people to swing, you know, from erasing and invisible, in invisibilizing, um, black trans women, um, and black trans feminine people, um, in, a swing into then just crafting trauma narratives around mm. um, 
their experiences. And so I, I think Thank it's you for naming that. Yeah. Like beyond just putting more stories out there and it can't just be the stories about homicide. It can't just be the stories about, uh, yeah, economic inequality. It can't just be the stories around prejudice and violence. There need to be more complex and dynamic stories around, uh, joy and thriving and resilience and, mm-hmm. um, all of the other, um, gifts and talents and skills, um, that, black trans women and black trans feminine people have. I, I have loved, um, seeing a number of, uh, GoFundMe pages started by, um, black trans women for their nonprofits take off because to me, that is representative of, uh, you know, a kind of social entrepreneurial, you know, spirit and innovation and, mm-hmm. Um, to see communities, um, rise up, you know, with them for themselves, by themselves, like it's something that, um, I just hope people, um, are able to move, you know, from apathy, you know, uh, and not just into pity, um, but into respect, mm-hmm. um, and into a place of being able to acknowledge the inherent um, dignity, uh, of black trans lives. Um, that's, mm. I don't know. That's, that's where I've tried to spend most of my <laughs> energy is not just heralding, um, the emergency, you know, and the crisis, mm. not that those things are not very real and very pressing, but they, they are not, um, the only story to be told here. Yes. Thank you for taking that in a different direction. I, I think as someone who, you know, recognizes her privilege in, in these spaces, especially as I'm kind of in the streets with the, you know, my, my black siblings, especially the organizers that are kind of leading us in this work, I'm, I do tend to center the trauma. Um, because it is the thing that, that breaks my heart in that moment. And yet it is the joy that comes from the work in the streets that continues to allow me to keep moving forward. So I, I, and I, 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 yeah, thank you for reminding me to kind of tilt the, the balance on that. Yeah. I mean, I think that we, I mean, I agree that there is such profound misogyny existing in this, in this culture. And that, that level of misogyny paired with toxic white masculinity is what perpetuates violence. And, and unfortunately, that's the narrative that gets picked up most often. We don't, we don't hear about the joy, the resilience, the coming together. We don't, he- you know, we don't hear those. And that's the great thing about disclosure is that disclosure complicates the narrative of violence with all these other narratives of trans women and trans representation. And, and it's, and it's a full picture, right? It's, um, 
it's it, it's not just trauma and violence and and the media has fetishized black pain for mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. decades right so um the the work that i think we all need to be doing is focusing on let's get free and healing and joy and how do we do that with our black siblings in ways that doesn't commodify or fetishize um them but rather celebrates their flourishing right because if we're not about the flourishing of all of creation then we might be peddling bad theology yeah right yeah i and i think as one like practical uh kind of uh takeaway i've had from all of this is i so i have spent a lot of time um thinking about masculinity um so i i identify mostly i guess as non-binary um but have a trans masculine experience and um one of the ways in which i've always felt that i could remain accountable um to a uh queer feminist lens is that i from my earliest memories i grew up um admiring um women and admiring femininity so my role models the people that i wanted to be when i grew up like it was perfectly accessible for me to look at oprah winfrey and think i want to be like her when i grow up Mm -hmm. um right and to me a part of one of the challenges that so many people face um in addressing um all of our structural kind of isms um you know especially with people they've been taught to other is that you at a certain point like feeling bad for someone can get you so far you know can bring you to empathy and then even learning to like respect a person can take you further but to me until you can learn to admire somebody in a way where you want to be like them you see like their way of being in the world as uh an inspiration and even an aspiration for yourself that's like until that point i don't think things can really change and so that's that's a part of why i i think it is so important to explore uh the multifacetedness of um you know people who are targeted for violence you know and and in this conversation black trans women um to find um stories and particular people organizers and leaders who i i find myself wanting to model you know what they're like seeing them as somebody i look up to and being able to name those reasons i think that's what really helps us to change our orientation is um is to be able to locate um you know our the aspirational parts you know of how how these different folks are showing up in in the world and in this movement right now. So beautiful. It's just beautiful to me. Thank you, Miles. Well, I am, I would love for you to share with our listeners um, 
how they might be able to find you. They want to learn more about you. If they want to connect with you on your socials, if they want to um, read some of the things you've written or watch some of the interviews you've done, what's, what's the best place for them to locate you? How, how, what are your handles? How do you want them to find you? Yeah. Um, so I'm on Twitter. Um, and my handle is miles M Y L E S underscore Markham. Um, M A R K H A M. I, I retweet a lot. I'm not exactly a, uh, a, I, I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not really a tweeter. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Instagram, um, I'm, uh, a underscore million underscore miles with a Y. And that's, um, if, if I am on social media, that's where I'm spending most of my time. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm out and about you uh, on the internet. I have a website that is somewhat functional and that's just <laughs> milesmarkham.com. You can, you can go there and see what I do. Um, and contact me that way. I believe my email is on that, that webpage as well. So yeah, milesmarkham.com. Mm. Well, thanks so much for being here. Awesome. We'll share that with all of you in the comments and yeah, we'll, we'll make sure everybody has that. And we're, yeah, thanks for being here. We're really grateful yeah. that you shared um, your story with us. We're grateful that you, I'm personally grateful that you um, unlocked a little bit of, um, of, of, a, of, a, of an imagination for me that I hadn't, I hadn't discovered. Um, and I think that I think that you know the the work that you're doing and the work that you continue you will continue to do in the world is is the kind of work that activist theology stands for um, mm -hmm. the ability to tell stories to get our hands dirty in the work um, to remain faithful to um, the identities that have brought us to this point um, and then to you know apply a critical lens to that and mm -hmm. and and figure out um, how it then moves into, into work that changes the world. That's the work of getting free. It is. Yeah. It is. Well, friends, we will join you again next week. We hope that you continue to really dig deeply in, into what it is that you should be doing right now during these times. Um, feel free to reach out to Robin or myself via our socials at Activist Theology on all the platforms. Don't forget that Activist and Theology share a T. And until next week, Miles, again, thank you so much. Yeah. And Robin, we will, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be back next week. We'll be back next week. We'll be back next week. I'm going to think long and hard on this episode. I'm grateful for both of you. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. Bye. Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement? Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns. Want to help support this podcast? Go to Activist Theology dot kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember, activist and theology share a T.
The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds. So early, they show me no 